What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is a seasoned producer for BBC Radio who's made many excellent documentaries. Full disclosure, I've appeared in one of them. He's also written for publications like The Guardian and The New Statesman. Now he's written his first book, The Death of Consensus, 100 Years of British Political Nightmares, which tells the story of three periods of national crisis, the 1930s, the 1970s and the 2010s, to explain what happens when political consensus splinters. Phil Tinline, thanks for joining me. Thank you. So I want to start with two key words in the title. Firstly, nightmares. And you mentioned Project Fear, you know, which is in the Scottish and Brexit referendums, which suggests that it was phony fear-mongering. Nobody really thought these bad things would, would happen and it was just trying to sort of freak people out. But... A lot of the times in the book, people seem to be genuinely terrified about certain things. Do you think that genuine fear is an underrated force in politics, that your, your, sort of, your opponent's deeply felt anxieties are sort of hard to take seriously? Yeah, and I think it's very easy to decide if something hasn't happened that it's not going to happen or it's almost certainly going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Depending on your view, it's very easy to make it serve your purposes. And I think the other thing, which is kind of one reason I wanted to write the book, is once things don't happen, they kind of evaporate. Because if you're telling the story of past events, Hmm. you're not telling the story of the things people thought might happen but didn't. And actually, I think that's absolutely crucial to how politics works because it shapes, you know, you can't live in the future and it does shape what you think is going to happen. You know, no deal Brexit, for example, which is slightly after Project Fear as an insult, but as an attack line. But, you know, no deal Brexit was absolutely real to very many people in 2019 and it deeply shaped our politics. It then didn't happen and suddenly we're on to COVID. But actually, it's still totally part of what politics was about that year. And if you forget that, you can't understand it. Well, even uh, having done a podcast through that period, like there were bits that I was reading and I was just like, holy shit, this was this was like so intense, this period. And then sort of after the 2019 election, it just sort of it sort of dissipated. But, you know, the rhetoric was, you know, was extremely, you know, extremely heated all around. The stuff that was happening, it was just sort of strange how quickly you can sort of memory hole that feeling, that anxiety, even if you remember the events. Exactly. And I think that's why it's important to remember where that happened in the past, because when it then rolls around another 35 years later, I think it allows you to navigate where you are. You know, certainly there are things to be frightened of and fears to take seriously, even if you don't hold them yourself. But it just allows you to put it in a little bit of context that actually, as I would argue, as I argue in the book, this is part of the process of a democracy messily changing its mind. It's going to throw up a lot of fear and you kind of have to embrace that as part of the process and not necessarily immediately cleave to tick, 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 1933 Germany. Was it reassuring sometimes to look at these fears that weren't realised? I mean, even World War II, a famously bad event, you know, was, was nowhere near as bad as people, you know, as many people were expecting, where they were expecting, you know, sort of, gas attacks on day one or a German invasion on day one or that it would turn Britain into a kind of quasi-fascist state and like it could have been so much worse. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think it's it's trying to rediscover not only what the fears were, but which ones were most intense for who, when. So Mm. there's a really interesting process, which I think is almost invisible until you start really kind of reading the stuff. 
in that late 1930s period between the fear of war and the fear of the Nazis. Now, actually, those are opposite fears. Because if the worst thing you fear is war, then coming to some sort of way of somehow avoiding it mm. is the thing you want to do. Look at the crowds when Munich happened. If you want to fight the Nazis, then you have to embrace war. And you can see person after person after person, including George Orwell, famously right after mm. the pact is signed. But, you know, he's relatively late. His acquaintances, Barbara Castle and Michael Foote, Stafford Cripps, people like that, are all making that same journey at different points. And that's mm. one reason it's messy, right? But I think, no, you have to kind of try and rediscover both the fear and, you know, who finds it the most frightening. And you, you write that a choice between nightmares is how a consensus begins to die. So let's see the second word, uh, consensus. There were times here where it's a very much like a kind of, the, 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 retrospectively, not at the time, I think, it's sort of labelled centrist, a centrist consensus. You very rarely use the word centrism. Are consensus and centrism interchangeable or are they quite different things? I didn't use the word centrism just because I felt like the term consensus is already somewhat contested and I wanted to be very careful about how I used it. And so I, I didn't use centrist for that reason. But also because, I mean, I don't consciously make that decision, actually. It's interesting you ask that question. But thinking about it now, I think the thing that's key about a given period of consensus, a given sort of shift into a new consensus for me, is much more about the specific thing that people are frightened of. So these two terms, consensus and nightmares, in my head and in my analysis, are, you know, pretty closely intertwined. I think trying to introduce mm. a third one would have been tricky. Also, you know, I think a lot of people in the 1940s would have thought of, you know, people like Nye Bevan as anything but a centrist. I think people would have thought of <laughs> yes, you know, yes. Norman Tebbit as anything but a centrist, Dominic Cummings as anything but a centrist. And actually, the other thing about that I listened to your podcast, which is very good about this. That moment in 1975, when the first referendum on do we stay in the European yeah. Union, which we've just joined, happens, there's this great desire, and you know, you identified it in that, to get back to some sort of consensus and to do it through something which feels very centrist. And there's this thing called Britain in Europe, which Roy Jenkins sets up, which Shirley Williams is on, uh, you know, which R Reggie Maudling and Willie Whitelaw are people from business, people from the unions. And you can see this thought, and you can see it in the headlines at the time, mm. it being talked about as this sort of coalition of the sensible that would just get us past all this craziness from the left and craziness from the right. And my, my contention would be that precisely because it was, quote-unquote, centrist, that wasn't going to work because you had to fight the disagreement out first, and then a consensus would emerge once that had been won and lost. You can't circumvent the battle over which nightmare is worse. You've got to settle it, then you can have a consensus. Well, that makes me wonder about this quote from Margaret Thatcher, which says, consensus was merely the process of avoiding the very issues that have to be solved. Now, you're sort of saying, well, okay, that is true in certain points where the conflict is sort of you know, can be postponed but not avoided. Was she just basically saying that that was always the case or that it was this case at a very specific point? Like, was she just anti-consensus at all times in all places? Uh, I think by 1987, when there was a fairly Thatcherite consensus, I think she was probably a lot more comfortable <laughs> with the idea. So, no, I think, I think it's a very, very political word and it's quite a sort of slippery business dealing with it because it's simultaneously... Uh, you know, it's somewhat problematic, but a tool of a useful tool of analysis, I think. And I think I've, you know, shown drawing on some scholarship that it was being used, you know, in the 1940s. It's not entirely post hoc imposed from the 70s in a sort of Pollyanna-ish mm. way. 
but it is still a highly political term. It's another reason it's useful because politicians use it. So when Thatcher is talking about consensus in the second half of the 1970s, she means post-war consensus, which is a series of compromises that she wants to overthrow. Once she's overthrown them, as I say, we have something else. Now, I'm not sure, I haven't actually looked, whether she personally used the word consensus about mm. the Thatcherite hegemony, as <laughs> um, Marxists would have called it, in the late... 80s, but I think plenty of other people do use it that way. And there was there was some you know good surprises in there. And I think particularly as someone who I am prone to the sort of sort of dramatic uh, idea of the 70s as like just con- unbroken crisis. And then you show in 1976 that the late Prime Minister James Callaghan briefly looked like he might be okay. That that you know he was kind of doing well in the polls and the sort of problems had had receded. Was that just an illusion that they were bound to come back? Did something particular go wrong that might not have gone wrong? Or is there this sort of... Do you basically reach this point of historical inevitability where it's just at the calm before the storm? Well, yeah, it looks retrospectively like the calm before the storm. But I think at the time, it's probably, you know, you can find calm and you can find storm depending where you look. And in order to get to that point, you know, Callahan gives this interview, which I hadn't clocked until I did the research for this, during the IMF crisis, where he says, if we do not have a deal with the IMF, the cabinet back, then what will happen is essentially the Conservatives will come in, we'll have a repeat of what happened with Heath, we'll have a massive bust-up between the unions and the Conservative government. We will then have seen that neither Labour nor the Conservatives can govern and we will have a totalitarianism of the left or the right, he says to Robin Day on TV. Mm. You know, and... After he said that, and then it's not happened, yes, then, you know, you have a sense of calm. And, you know, it's important to remember, as we've rediscovered in recent years, that there is, you know, there's there's how politics works for people like you and me, who think about it all the time, for people who are doing it professionally. And then there's how life is working with politics in the corner, mm. sort of framing it for everybody else. So in the 1930s, you know, it's very important. And I, I discovered more, I got this clearer in my head as I went along, that actually, you know, yes, there's the depression, yes, there's fascism, yes, there's all these fears of war, and et cetera, et cetera. But there's also, you know, very affordable houses. There's an improvement. In, you know, if you're, mm. if you're in a job, your wages are rising. There's all sorts of light industries making new stuff you can put in your house. People working in the car industry in Coventry don't really need to unionise. They're being paid really well. They don't care about what's happening in Yorkshire. They're doing great, you know, until Jack Jones arrives and unionises them and, and things change, not necessarily for the worse. But, but so there's plenty of people in the 30s for whom life is fine. While the storm and drang is crashing around, mm. there's plenty of people in the 70s who can buy a Calatelli, can, you know, go on holiday. Again, wages are rising. And I think similarly, there's been plenty of people, you know, maybe not in the 2010s in the same way. But it is a disjuncture that we have to bear in mind that, you know, the fears and the apocalypse that's sort of unfolding is, is a real political phenomenon, it's just not necessarily real in everybody else's life. It still amazed me how real it was for people like, in speeches by people like Callahan and Thatcher, because I, you know, have at certain times when, when thinking about this period, worry that I, I sort of overstate, I get carried away by, you know, what playwrights are saying or, you know, private armies planning coups. And you feel like, ah, it's hysteria. And then sometimes I wonder, was, like, was this actually important? And to see Callahan and Thatcher talk about this very real sort of spectre of totalitarianism, you know, whether that be fascist or communist. So it did seem to be, whether it was affecting people who were glad that they had a, had a telly, you know, it was really in the kind of main 
stream of politics. Oh, yeah. And if you look at, um, there's an NOP poll that's done for Panorama in the uh, in September 1974, which shows, I can't remember the stat, but it's something like sort of 60 odd percent of people are, are fairly or very worried about democracy. So, no, I mean, it's not it's not like there's a total simple black and white mm-hmm. divide between everyone having a nice time in Spain and then five politicians <laughs> having a nervous breakdown over here. But yeah. no, no, I mean, the, the two things in set, I mean, this is why I find the word nightmare so useful. Because it catches that ambiguity, it's something that sort of is real mm. for many people, but it also speaks to the fact that it, it does have a sort of what-if quality as well. So, no, I mean, but the, the crucial thing, I think, about the coups, uh, the sort of fear of a coup, I mean, partly it, it that conflates three different things. It conflates uh, ex-soldiers and actual soldiers. Yeah actual soldiers operating against the government or actual soldiers operating, as in the Churchill plate, on the instruction of the government. So there's a there's a whole kind of mess of, mm. you know, contradictory scenarios there. But the, the point about it is, and I think this is often missed, because Pinochet introduced the free market, yeah. is that actually what those things express is a sort of, as I was saying earlier, is a, is a sort of desperate sense that there is no democratic solution, so let's do this. But what they want to do, what those guys want to do you know, is not in the main, and certainly in 74 when you're talking about, they don't want to introduce Thatcherism. They want a sort of armed post-war consensus. <laughs> they want to force pickets. They want to force their way through right, yeah, yeah, yeah. with guns. Yeah. And there's a sort of a lack of imagination which is filled in with weaponry uh, or imagined weaponry. Yeah. And that's the change that's very easy to miss. You know, the, the National Association for Freedom kind of has both of them. It's a sort of interzone. It has both people like Brian Crozier who are going around military bases saying, you know, maybe you should be ready to you know, squash strikes. But it also has, you know, people like Nicholas Ridley, who's just, you know, not interested in that, straight up free marketeer. And it, it sort of slides across to the point where actually, you know, the private armies are a kind of sitcom joke, but introducing the free market becomes possible because of the winter discontent. So I want to go back to the to, to the first section of the book, which yeah. is the is the thirties. Yeah. And you say that consensus isn't you know isn't about being friendly or indistinguishable. It's about the political class settling on a shared taboo. And you start in nineteen thirty one. So how did Labour and the Tories find that shared taboo? Yeah, there's there's a, the, the shared taboo that comes out of the early thirties is that even though we have 3 million people unemployed for a while, we still mustn't have huge government borrowing. We mustn't have government borrowing because that will lead to uh, the devaluation of the currency, even once we've come off the gold standard, which and those those two things are connected. But even after that has, has happened and the supposed nightmares that we're going to institute haven't, still deficits are seen in the Treasury as being a sort of terrible uh, route to um, the devaluation of the currency, massive inflation and economic and social chaos. And I would say that more than anything, the reason why that happens is Philip Snowden and the fact that the Labour Chancellor is the son of a Yorkshire Chartist Gladstone fan who grows up on the absolutely granite basis that you do not get into debt. Mm. Borrowing is as bad as gambling, and it's a deeply religious thing, actually. And, you know, Philip Snowden, one of the founders of the Labour Party, you know, goes around preaching, you know, the phrase the New Jerusalem is the kind of thing he was saying, you know, in Yorkshire uh, villages and valleys in 1900. You know, the idea that uh, you, you get to socialism by slowly and carefully running the capitalist economy and gradually, and frankly, he's quite vague about how this is going to work, <laughs> making it work better and better and better. Now, actually... Step two, question right, mark. Well, right. <laughs> in a way, actually, that is kind of what turned out to be the case. You know, people, the average working class person's life in 2000 was a hell of a lot better than it was in 1900. And that's not because we had a revolution. Mm. You know, that was a gradual osmotic process. But but that's his, that's his sort of 
you know, his founding nightmare. And so therefore, when he comes into government, both as chancellor in 1924, briefly, and then he's chancellor in 1931, right, 1929 to uh, 31, when, you know, the ship really hits the fan, you know, that is the thing to which he cleaves. Now, that wasn't the case for everybody in the Labour Party, somebody like, or the Labour movement, somebody like Ernest Bevin, is already a Keynesian by that point. So it's not necessarily inevitable, but I would say, you know, in, in basic terms, he's pretty crucial to that happening. These things take quite a long time between the sort of the crisis, the splintering and the finding of a new consensus is a, is a long process. Mm. Do you think it would have happened, you know, even without, even without a war, that it was moving that way? Alan Allport, in his brilliant book, Britain at Bay, does a little near-future sketch from 1939 of what might have happened if oh. there hadn't been a war. And, you know, there'd been a general election in 1940 and Chamberlain won again. And, you know, then eventually Chamberlain was perhaps replaced by Rab Butler or something like that. And, no, I mean, I think, I think the thing about the war is that it's not totally unlike COVID, many differences, but it, to some extent, accelerates and pushes over the line things that were happening already. But no, I think the I think it would have been different. I can't sort of get, second guess how exactly. But I think the the really crucial thing about it was that it created this incredibly strong analogy in enough heads between Nazism and unemployment that once we defeated the Nazis, we had to keep right. unemployment defeated. And what's really interesting is that for people in the sort of vanguard of this thinking, that analogy, that precise analogy is there in 1933. So, you know, J.B. Priestley is comparing people when he's touring around England uh, to write English Journey, touring around sort of the northeast of England. He talks about people, uh, you know, who are unemployed as prisoners of war. You know, there's a, there's a right-wing Tory MP called Viscount Top Walmer, you know, who is a strong advocate of economic intervention to help the unemployed, who says, if we only thought of this as an economic air raid, perhaps we'd help these people, ah, right? Yeah. And so this analogy becomes closer, more and more sort of uh, tightly sort of linked together and uh, more and more widely held. And then once the war makes deficits and any risks that come with it, obviously less risky than you know, an actual Nazi invasion. People can then look back and say, well, you know, we've defeated the Nazis. We have to keep unemployment defeated. Why is it that we ever thought we couldn't borrow money? And so it does have a very particular effect. It's hard to guess exactly what would have happened without it. And then, I mean, after the war, you you cut to the, well, the, the, the late 60s and then really into the 70s. And what seems to be happening there is that the power of the memory of unemployment it's, it's fading. So there's still some, there's still a lot of people. I mean, someone like, you know, Michael Furt, who has those memories of like, well, this is the most horrific thing. You must do everything to avoid that. And then I think under the, partly under the influence of people from, of like Austrian economists who had experienced like, who had witnessed sort of hyperinflation and thought that that was the scariest thing in the world. That becomes the new terror. I mean, it's largely that, I mean, obviously there were very many reasons why there was this, you know, economic crisis then but is part of that kind of sea change just to do with like the fading of the stigma and the taboo that you must do anything on earth basically to prevent unemployment yeah it's several things happening at the same time and one of those is that there's something more uh, for some people at least more pressing which is inflation is heading by the end of 1975 to 25 percent now the reasons for that are 
partly to do with the oil shock and, yeah. you know, lots of different sort of is multi-causal, of course. But nonetheless, it's pretty mind-focusing to have inflation at 25%. And yeah, there is this old nightmare from 1923, which is absolutely invoked in 1931. There's multiple people in the Commons in 31 when the cuts are being pushed through on unemployment benefits saying, well, I was in Germany and I saw the, uh, you know, the right, wheelbarrows yeah. of cash, you know, on both sides. Some people saying, well, it's I, I saw them too, but it's not a good analogy. Other people saying, oh, the steamroller is, is railing, racing towards us. So, so yes, there's that. There's a sense that there is a more compelling nightmare. There's then a sense that this is a sort of out-of-date memory. And even though, you know, somebody like Samuel Britton, who went into economics because of that, still sort of acknowledges the pain. And you watch people very sort of sort of painfully separating their emotional view of it from their analytical view mm. and slowly sort of coming to terms with the idea that even though I don't want it to happen again, actually, even if unemployment goes up, and it is going up anyway, not to 30s levels, but even if unemployment got back to 30s levels, it wouldn't be quite the same. And the most telling example of this that I found is a young man who does an interview for Newsnight in 1981, just before the People's March for Jobs, which is this sort of elegiac attempt to recreate the marches of the 30s, including people on it who were on the marches of the 30s. Mm. And he says, well, it wasn't the same in black and white, was it? And that sounds facile, but actually... It captures the point really neatly, you know, and he mentions benefits as well. Being unemployed in 1981 was nobody's idea of fun, but it was not the same as being unemployed in 1931. And whatever you think of that observation, that along with, you know, the generational forgetting, along with the sense there were worse problems, is part of the process of it just tipping over. Well, the winter of discontent Mm. now is like 44 years ago. And my entire life, pretty much, I've been hearing from Tory politicians and press about, you know, piles of rubbish, bodies lying unburied, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that is always the sort of, the spect sort of, they're in Labour. And I thought perhaps that would that was sort of vanquished by new Labour, but it came up again, you know, with Corbyn. And I wonder if we are talking about sort of generational forgetting the world changing a lot. Do you think that that, nightmare that's sort of attached to Labour is finally dead? Or does it still have some power over some voters? Well, I would say I think people, some people hope and think that it does because it's being deployed a lot right now. Hmm. Uh, it's there in Britannia Unchained. Britannia Unchained, books book by you know five young sort of neo-Thatcherite uh, Conservative MPs who I think will become MPs in 2010, you know, and who were born between 1971 and 1982 from memory and therefore don't really have much of a memory of it personally. The, the sense that, you know, financial crisis leads to this kind of thing and a sense of decline and so on is, is very strongly invoked in that. And, and you know, fair enough. It, is a, it wasn't a, an ideal moment in our history. But so I think you have to divide it partly into the difference between memory and folk memory. I think there's just as, you know, preeminently with the Second World War, lots of people have a pretty strong folk memory of the Second <laughs> yeah, World yeah. War, right? How many actual humans are there who can remember it now? Yeah. You know, my father-in-law was 88 years old, died earlier this year, just about... You know, he remembered VE Day. He was he was ten, but you know this is pretty marginal now. But the Second World War and versions thereof are very present. So I think there is definitely a sort of a sort of a sort of afterlife to that memory, which does still have some purchase. But my instinct, and I don't have data for you on this, but just in terms of the sheer demographic shift, you know, I would have thought that you know if fewer people really remember it, it's less likely to be powerful. Obviously, the other factor is what it's intersecting with. 
Mm. You know, if it's intersecting with Jeremy Corbyn, who was, you know, a UP activist during the winter of discontent, you know, or it's intersecting with inflation heading back towards what it was in 1978, 10%, then it will have a sort of a, mm. a boost. Well, moving to the, the third section of the book, which is the, the the ones that everyone will be able to remember, not fondly, probably. Um, so we've had the shocks of the 2008 crisis and a Brexit, but we haven't reached this new consensus yet. The 2019 election doesn't now feel like a sea change of like 45 or 79. And there's lots of talk and has been, as you described there, for, for several years of this sort of post-liberal blue Labour slash red Tory consensus. And the people who are in favour of it all sort of think that this has this sort of logical inevitability that, you know, you just have, to, this is this is obviously the way forward. But we haven't sort of reached that point yet. And this is largely, I think, because you've got a lot of sort of more free market Tories who just hate the idea. And you've got a lot of very socially liberal uh, Labour MPs and voters who hate the idea. So, you know, it doesn't end... This is history's fault, not yours. Um, it doesn't end with the establishment of a new consensus, but you can see a lot of people really kind of pushing for one. What would it take, given these kind of crises you already had, for that to to really sort of coalesce? Well, so on my sort of nightmares principle, I would say that there, are, as you've just described, there are still there is still a sort of social liberal nightmare that that something that is sort of post liberal. I mean, post-liberal, I talk to people sometimes about this who find the phrase post-liberal deeply unnerving. Yeah. Right? It sounds like anti-liberal. And, you know, I'm not advocating it or criticising it particularly. I'm just trying to work out what's happening. But I would say that, for good or ill, there are lots of people who find a move to something which, you know, to a policy which is more about these phrases, some of which are Labour slogans now, you know, protection and security and solidarity and community and, you know, and pulling back from globalisation, all these things. That, that that produces nightmares for quite a lot of social liberals. And by calling them nightmares, I in no way mean to belittle or dismiss them. I'm just trying to understand how it works politically. In the same way, for many economic liberals, I think the idea of you know a big, heavily indebted state, which is in, in getting involved in people's lives, is running industrial strategies and so on, is again a nightmare. I think, however, that there have been, I'm trying to trace this in the book, there have been quite significant changes in that over the last decade. So something like immigration, I think it seems fairly consensual now that there is, that that issue has cooled significantly, that post-Brexit, the idea that there is a, there is, however rhetorical this is, that there is a feeling Mm. that there is greater control over the situation and that people feel like they've been listened to in their complaints about it again whatever you think of those complaints that feels to me like a move in the direction on migration not on asylum seekers yet but on migration that feels to me like there is a greater sense of consensus on industrial strategy you know the current government is sort of pulling in two directions on that but you know actually all the way through peter mandelson after the crash to vince cable and the coalition to david willits under the coalition and then uh you know the creation of a department with that in the name for a while under Theresa May, that feels like there's a degree of de facto consensus. I think, so it does feel to me like we're getting somewhere in that direction. But I don't think that what's going to, personally, I don't think what's going to happen is a sort of post-liberal nirvana, just as the 1980s and 90s were not a sort of full-on free market nirvana. We still had a national health service, you mm. know, and the Attlee government didn't create a sort of socialist New Jerusalem either. Yeah. 
that's the nature of consensus. It's a messy compromise. But I think so. I think there are significant things that have changed in terms of what people are prepared to agree on. And I think part of that is that process of a sort of democratic desperation that oppositions get into in the end. There are things that the Labour Party, I think, objectively, is now prepared to advocate that it once wasn't prepared to advocate because it's gone through a process of losing four general elections. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. But I think we do feel to me like we're messily staggering towards something. The only other thing I would say is that I think, I wonder if people are cleverer at reading this stuff, because this is now, the, I would argue, the third time we've been around something like this sort of process. People are cleverer at singing the songs, but not necessarily at doing the hard political yards to actually get their parties right. to actually do it. You know, so I think, I think the, the 2019 election now starts to look more like, you know, uh, something that led to a Callaghan or <clears throat> Chamberlain type situation. But at the time, three years ago, it looked more like Attlee and Thatcher. Yeah. And if, if, if you're talking about returning to this idea of shared taboos, so what would be the shared taboo now? Would it be the sense of the, you know, the the left behind and the strains that that might put on democracy? I'm trying to sort of articulate what both Labour and the Tories would, would what nightmare they would agree on. Well, I think you can see exactly that happening. I think, you know, the amount of, again, there's a rhetoric you know, delivery gap. But I think the amount of attention that writers and politicians and people making stuff for broadcast and, you know, lots of people, the intelligentsia, are putting into thinking about the, you know, the economic and social and sort of spiritual most conditions of, or cultural conditions of, of, of people living in places they don't go to very often mm. is manifestly massively greater than it was. 12 years ago. People, mm. after the crash, when pay flatlined and we didn't have mass unemployment, but we had mass precarity and mass under unemployment, underemployment, people didn't start having lots and lots of conversations about what was going on in Sunderland, particularly. I don't, well, at least I don't remember it. Mm. I think that has really shifted and that's democracy doing its job to refocus it. So I think, no, I think there is a nightmare, which, you know, it's very easy to overstate. It's very easy to caricature. Political scientists rightly are putting a lot of emphasis on, you know, this was not simply the poor saying, you know, attend to us. There were plenty of people who voted Leave and voted Conservative in 2019 who they might describe as sort of working class and economically secure and older, who might have, you know, a mix of views, which is very different to a, mm. you know, a precar precariously employed, you know, non-graduate. But it's it's complicated and multivalent. But in terms of the basic simple imagery of politics, yeah, I think the idea of town centres that have been kind of let die, yeah, and people who've just been left to feel that no one really gives the monkeys about them. You know, whatever the truth of that, I think that basic image is becoming the, the shared political nightmare that people may don't maybe don't want to go back to. What I would say though is, it's hard to think of a really big cultural artifact that embodies that, and I'm not sure that was true in the past. So we'll see if one happens. And I know this is a book about about Britain um, and America has its own uh, has its own issues, but but I do wonder because I suppose that is the more extreme example of this. And I know there are people in Britain who would like us to be a bit more like America in this respect. Is you're describing battles over economic policies, and you look at American politics; it's so divided by by cultural issues. You know that sometimes it's very hard for the sort of Democrats to be talking about, you know, talking about the economy because it's all about you know bathrooms. 
and, uh, you know, guns and abortion and so on. And I wonder whether a culture war makes it harder or even impossible for a new consensus to form, even if the two parties agree on economics. Like, is there something that has... Because history does have... We have these sort of cycles and echoes, but also we have things that change. And is there sort of a... Is it possible for these wedge issues to sort of mean that you never reach that new consensus? That's really interesting. Well, so I would say that that there is this sort of dual set of pair of nightmares that people have been wrestling with in the last few years, you know, the economic liberal nightmare of a bloated state and massive inflation and the social liberal nightmare of something that looks very conservative and authoritarian and sort of nationalist. Um, So I think that's absolutely part of the, the picture. What's really interesting about how things have shifted in the, uh, the sort of the, the balance of debate since sort of since the 2019 election is first you've had COVID and then you've had the cost of living and we've still got the cost of living and you've also got Ukraine. And I think those three things have put more emphasis fairly, for fairly obvious reasons on the economic side. Mm. But no, no, the, 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 the sense that some people, you know, see what should be thought of as British culture one way and other people who vote for the same party think of it in a very different way. Now, that's absolutely still part of the picture. I think at the moment in Britain, much more than America, it feels like economics is trumping some of that. And I do wonder, again, more than in America, this is speculative, it's too early to say, but I do wonder whether Ukraine is maybe, because there's such a consensus on support mm. for helping the Ukrainians, perhaps more than in some European countries or some Western European countries. I do wonder if, you know, if for the left there is something, and this may be not going to happen at all, right, but something about seeing, for instance, young gay Ukrainians with rainbow flag painted on the gun that they are going to take out to the front to defend their rights to the death because they know what will happen if they live under Russian occupation. There is something about seeing that kind of sense of, you know, national pride, security, belonging, community, all these words that have really kind of, you know, worrying resonances for people, seeing it in that context that may possibly have some impact here. And similarly, the way that, you know, certain people in the city of London who have come under a great deal more pressure in the last few months than they ever were before over whether they're in law or you know yeah. banking or whatever, who have been very helpful to you know Russian oligarchs in laundering their money, whether again that's just you know in quite a consensual way actually is sort of nudging people away from the idea that you know any step away from globalization and mm. free, the freedom of finance to do what it wants, you know, is, is going to bring on communism, you know. It's funny because there are so many bits in in, in the book where, you, you know, you just feel like you see that sort of little flash of, of relevance to now. And there's this argument. I mean, I know it's around the Second World War, which is also a very different context. But even when there's people on the left talking for the need for a critical left nationalism, you know, and as somebody who, who, who thinks that just like the left has to get over its kind of, you know, flag cringe and has to kind of, you know, offer its own version of sort of British identity without worrying that that's basically going to turn them into Nazis. And seeing that at a time when there were like actual Nazis around, just kind of, you just get that little kind of, uh, that thrill of going, oh, right, like, you know, there are huge changes since then, but some of the same issues. Right. And I think, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, having actual Nazis facing you, you know, it does focus the mind in that respect, right? But it's really interesting watching those people on the left, some of whom then become, you know, major players in the government, like Stafford Cripps, who's later, you know, 
Minister for Air- Aircraft Production, you know, but who in the in the period in sort of 36, 37 or so before he decides that the primary nightmare is Nazi attack, you know, is so influenced by the First World War, which is, you know, the great founding nightmare of the short 20th century, you know, that we must never go back to this horrendous yeah. kind of working class mutual slaughter for the benefit of arms dealers, you know, sort of model, you know, who says or is reported to have said at least that it would be no bad thing for the British working class if the Germans invaded. Now, he may not actually have said that, but, you know, he there was certainly, you know, he and others were certainly saying there should be a general strike if there's a war because of this idea that you alluded to earlier that, that you know, uh, which Attlee talked about, you know, that, that we would have to become fascist to fight fascism. You know, so, so there is this process of having to kind of go, well, actually, is that the thing we need to most worry about? Because we really need to think about whether those guys over the, you know, in Germany are actually more worrying. But that still takes three years for some people. For me, it's one of my big takeaways from the book is you've got people that sometimes are doing it in quite a short space of time to two, three years, or even months. And then you've got other people where it's it's sort of over decades. They've they have these political journeys where their their nightmares change and their priorities change. And it is a good reminder, I think, that people can do that, that politicians can actually ha- evolve and not just be sort of stuck. Thank you so much for talking, Phil Tinline. Thank you. The Death of Consensus is published by Hearst. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend, sharing it on social media or reviewing us on iTunes. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>